even with all of these positive developments in innovation and funding, is it reasonable to become sustainable as a mega region? I will go back to Bill Gates' line. Daunting, but hopeful. I absolutely believe that's true. I'll go back to the other night with the Mariners. When they thought they were losing that game in the bottom of the night, two outs, seven, six, two home runs. Daunting, but hopeful. That's who we are. We can do that. I love that the Mariners are the inspiration and not the Broncos. Good call. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. We're coming to you from Seattle, where we get to report each day on what's happening around us in tech, business, and innovation. What happens here matters everywhere. And every week on this show, we talk about some of the most interesting tech and business stories in the news. And this week, we are talking about the climate. Our guest is former Washington State Governor Chris Gregoire. She is the CEO of Challenge Seattle and the co-chair of the steering committee for the Cascadia Innovation Corridor, a cross-border initiative that brings together leaders from Washington State, Oregon, and British Columbia. This week, she led the group's Cascadia 2050 Vision Conference, focusing on climate action. Governor Gregoire, it's great to have you here. Thank you. It's good to be here. I attended this conference in Blaine, Washington, and it was really remarkable to see everyone come together, not just to talk about the challenge of the climate, but to discuss and prepare to take concrete steps. In fact, there are 14 of them that were presented in a report that went out before the event. What were your key takeaways from this event in terms of what this group and others can do as next steps? So, you know, Todd, it's interesting. If you look at climate, it's a very large and complex issue. And so we set out to really focus based on where could we really address the biggest emission problems? Where could we use our skills, our assets, our innovation, our talent? Where could we get real return? And based on that, we also identified two key things that have held everybody back over the last decade, and that is money and innovation and technology. So what we found ourselves is at the apex of unbelievable advancements in technology. And at the same time with the IRA, new monies being made available. And the same is true in Canada with the infrastructure bank. So while we focused on a number of things specifically to do, 14, I'll just give you two that I think are immediately on the horizon. And we are not ones who think that there hasn't been efforts before and these are brand new. There have been, but there hasn't been the execution. And that's what we're striving for. One has to do with the electric vehicle. Too many of our public are not buying an electric vehicle out of fear they're not going to have a charging station or they can't get as far as they need to go with a charging station along the way. So I think we, with the announcement by the president of $1 billion being made available to 35 states, the investment being made in our own Cascadia corridor for this, I think we're on the verge of having what we call the electric highway that hopefully will take us from Canada through California. And I think we will see that happen shortly. So that's very positive. The other one is really one that we have to focus on. Mother Nature has made it clear to us with the loss of a million acres of land 
In Malden, Washington, 85% of the homes were lost. The cost astronomical of our wildfires. And to think that Seattle, Vancouver, and Portland have been ranked the worst air quality in the world for a couple of years now on certain critical days with the wildfire smoke. So we know there's a new opportunity there, and that is technology. And there are all-out efforts going on now to do some satellite imaging, to do AI, to really early detect, to manage, to prevent. And one perfect example of that is what's going on at Microsoft, where in India they have their research folks looking at satellite modeling and AI both. So I think that's another one, and it's critical. Mother Nature's not going to allow us any more time. We have got to get on this, and I'm very hopeful. You mentioned the IRA, and that's the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. And I think that was one of the things that really stood out to me. There's often lip service given to action, but here you have the actual funding. And that is where the opportunity comes in. And that was something that was very different about this conference and about the overall conversation. The phrase that kept coming up was that the Cascadia Innovation Corridor hopes to create the world's first sustainable mega region. And that obviously includes Washington and British Columbia and Oregon. It was funny, Gavin Newsom, the California governor, appeared on a panel and he called himself the plus one. I thought that was one of the funniest lines of the conference. But when you talk about a sustainable mega region, what does that mean? How will it happen? And what are the long-term implications? We established our vision for Cascadia in 2020. All of us are suffering from the lack of affordable housing, which is causing no end of problems for us. All of us are suffering from traffic congestion that is eating up the quality of life of our people, as well as costing us in the greenhouse gas emissions, but in a whole lot of other ways as well. And we want to ensure that we're meeting the Paris Accord Agreement goals. So we set about that vision to be the first sustainable mega region in the world. There are 29 in total. And we see no one really focused on this issue. We think it's an economic issue, a human issue, an animal issue. It's all of those. So we strive to achieve that. And this conference wanted to focus on the third pillar, which is how do we step up and become the first sustainable mega region by addressing the Paris Accord Agreement? I have to say, I think we have the potential, and now all we have to do is execute, to really be the first in the world. With the talent that we have here, with the political leadership, with the innovation and creativity uh, and technology that we have, there's no reason why we can't achieve this vision. The conference was interesting in terms of the contrast, and it was surprising. Bill Gates opened it, and I'm not accustomed in covering Bill Gates to hearing him give a super positive outlook on climate, but he actually started with two separate encouraging signs that he sees, and you reference both of them, uh, innovation and the Inflation Reduction Act. The key thing I look at is, are we innovating so that in each of those areas of emission, we will eventually have a way of creating the equivalent, that is, making cement with no emissions, steel with no emissions, taking plane flights with no emissions, where the price, which I call the green premium, the price increase above today's activity, which is emitting greenhouse gases, 
that we get to that price parity. And there, I would say the last three or four years have been fantastic. In 2015, when the Paris climate meeting was held, the amount of money going to increase R&D budgets or even venture capital into these technologies Mm -hmm. was near zero. You know, it had come down because there'd been a lot of failures. Since 2015, it's gone up a lot. Now, we do have to face, along with the Ukraine challenge, the fact that risk-based capital, as of the last three or four months, is a little less accessible. But I really don't think that'll slow things down dramatically. You know, a few of the valuations that may have gotten ahead of themselves will be brought down. But I don't see companies with good technologies having difficulty getting money. People believe in this cause enough that I think we can scale them up, get them industrial partners, get them over the finish line. So I'm actually feeling pretty good about climate because of the pace of innovation. But then Charlie Davis of Boston Consulting Group kind of brought the group back down to reality with a stat that he gave about the the ratio of carbon emissions per capita in the Cascadia region. The first is three and a half. And that's the ratio of per capita emissions here in Cascadia relative to the global average. We are disproportionate contributors to the global emissions problem. And just for point of reference, it would take every single person in this room and the other 16 and a half or so million Cascadia residents each to plant and cultivate over 160 trees in order for us to offset enough emissions to get us to that global average. That's two and a half billion trees we all need to go out and plant just to get to average. So clearly there's work we have to do from an emissions mitigation standpoint. So clearly there's tons of work there to do. Given that, is it reasonable, even with all of these positive developments in innovation and funding, is it reasonable to become sustainable as a mega region? You know, I look around the globe at the Danish government, for example, what they're doing, and their goal is much shorter, 2030, 70% reduction, and they're on the path to meet it. I look at LA and the electrification going on down there in readying them for the 2028 Olympics. There are models around the globe where progress is being made, but I don't see the kind of all-out mega-region effort that we're suggesting in making it happen. And the reason why I'm so optimistic is, one, we have amazing political leadership. From the premier to the three governors, they are all stepping up with their legislative bodies and putting in place the policies to not only get things done, but to inspire to set goals, to bring people together. They're putting in place the infrastructure to make it happen. Then on the other side, you have the business community setting their own big, bold, visionary goals and saying they're going to develop the technology. And we know we have absolute capacity to do that. We've got the talent. We're ranked in Washington State, for example, one of the top in the nation for green jobs. And then we've got academia, amazing research institutions up and down the corridor uniting around this issue. So what I heard Bill Gates say, it is a daunting task, make no mistake, but he is hopeful. I join in that message. It is daunting, but if we can't do it here, where can it be done? When I arrived at the Semiyamu Resort, I was actually a little surprised there was a small group of protesters outside. And at first I thought, what could somebody be protesting at a climate conference? I mean, increasingly, 
everyone is on board with the notion that climate change is real and something needs to be done. And so I went over and talked to them. And one of the leaders expressed a variety of concerns. But the takeaway that I took was she's concerned about the unelected nature of this group, essentially carving up the carbon economy in the interest of corporations. That was the main concern that she had. And the fact that it was not publicly elected as an organization in such a way that it could be tracked transparently to the public. What are your thoughts on that? And what would you say to somebody who raised a concern such as that? So we have our elected leadership that is very much engaged in setting the policy. We don't set policy. We don't write regulations. They do. And they are engaged in partnering with us. But having served as an elected official, I can tell you, the public sector cannot alone do what needs to be done if we're to achieve the Paris Agreement goals. So I think it absolutely takes a public-private partnership, and all parties are willing. And public-private, by the way, isn't business and the public sector. It's the academic institutions. It's the nonprofit organizations I mean, we heard from labor representatives and we heard from environmentalists at the conference, both totally committed to making this happen. And the average citizen, the average resident in the corridor plays a significant role in what we want to achieve. So are we transparent? Absolutely. We have nothing to hide. We want this all to work for every person who resides in the corridor. So it's about all of us working together into that group. Join us. Be a part of it. We want to find solutions that everybody's engaged in, involved, not standing on the sidelines or being critical, but engaged and involved. And we welcome that. Coming up, how California, Washington, and Oregon can work together on climate action. I wanted a career in IT, but I didn't know where to start. WGU makes it simple. Their accredited online degree programs cover all kinds of IT specialties, and they have valuable industry certifications built in at no extra cost. The payoff? Having those certs back up my degree makes me look even better to future employers. A nonprofit university that includes top industry certs in their programs? I choose WGU. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. We're talking with former Washington Governor Chris Gregoire, co-chair of the Cascadia Innovation Corridor. I was also struck by the fact that you had Native American leaders, not only at the conference, but on stage, addressing some of the key issues and how they can take part and how this affects Native populations. You know, it's really telling in talking with our Indigenous communities how much more they have been impacted by the floods, for example, in, in Canada and Washington, floods that were among the worst in the history of Canada. And because of the rural nature of many of their First Nation communities, they were hit hardest and lost more. So we invited them to participate, not only because of their culture, which is so connected to our natural resources, which are, in the end, very important, our forestry, we can't afford to lose it. It is capturing the carbon. Wildfires release that carbon. So we need our forestry. We need our water. We need our, our salmon and our, our shellfish. 
And they are key to making that happen. The other thing is, I will share with you, Canada's First Nations have come together with a document that says the way in which we solve climate is by we all partner, we all work together. So to me, we can learn a great deal from them by having them totally engaged. So we have now added one individual, Chris Peters, from the Squaxin tribe in Washington State to our steering committee. And Greg Diavanon, my co-chair, is doing the same thing in British Columbia. We need their advice. We need their counsel. They can no longer afford to be adversely impacted as dramatically as they have been from the forest fires and the floods of recent. It struck me that I used a very ethnocentric phrase earlier. I said Native Americans. This is First Nation. This is Canada and U.S. It's important to, to acknowledge that. You can tell where I grew up and went to school. Speaking of which, I did actually grow up in Northern California, so I was very intently listening to Governor Newsom during the talk, and it struck me that you got the Cascadia region and then the plus one, as he put it, but there is a huge difference. I don't know if the word drought came up once in that conversation, and it's a big difference, and maybe I've been reading too many books about dams and pipelines or whatever, but do you see ways for there to be more of a holistic collaboration on issues such as drought and energy among California, Oregon, and Washington. Totally. So Governor Newsom is a part of what we call the Pacific Coast Collaborative, which originated when Governor Schwarzenegger of California and I got together and invited Oregon and British Columbia to join. And we did so to address climate. And that has been continued and kind of reactivated, if you will, because California, who's been a tremendous leader in this area, is now finding that over the last couple of years, the emissions from forest fires are exceeding all other emissions in California. So the crisis is absolutely paramount there. And the drought conditions that, that they're seeing, particularly the adverse impacts to our food security, is first in mind for folks like that. And we're not without, in eastern Washington, drought conditions. We are not without the kind of adverse consequences of a late winter, like what we saw and what it did to our pitted crops in Washington state. So we share all of that. And British Columbia has a large agricultural presence. So we share all of that. Our energy grid ties us. We don't have a choice. You cannot go it alone if you want energy. You have to go as a region, and that's exactly what we do. And we heard about that from the former head of the Bonneville Power Administration. So we have to be partners. And I will tell you in times past, we have talked about, is there a way to spread the water that we have, which on occasions is in, in excess, to help out, particularly in California, when they've had crop problems in the past. That is a, a topic we should continue to talk about. But energy and what it takes for us to get the electric grid that we want and continue to have as reliable as Steve Wright put it, will take all of us. So you cannot, in this area, go as one state or one province and think you can solve it. Next up, the role of high-speed rail and autonomous electric vehicles. A big focus of the conference, it came up in multiple sessions, was high-speed rail. And in the past, especially, for example, in my conversations previously with 
now the late Tom Alberg from Madrona Venture Group, who was very much into EVs and autonomous vehicles, he really saw autonomous vehicles as an alternative to high-speed rail, at least as I remember him casting it. He wanted to invest more in autonomy in individual vehicles than in high-speed rail. Do you see those two things as fundamentally opposed or as two different alternatives? So I look at it a bit differently. An autonomous vehicle, I think, has great potential to offer us enhanced safety. And that's why I have worked on that issue in the past. However, if you're having an autonomous vehicle that's run by gasoline, it is not helping us address the climate problems. If you're sitting in a line with all these other cars, which is not only causing us emissions, and transportation is the number one problem of greenhouse gas emissions in the corridor, you're not only causing that problem, but you're diminishing the quality of life of these individuals who are sitting in a parking lot. And that's I-5 too often. So I think there's a place for autonomous vehicles, and I would encourage the technology to advance, but that cannot replace what is offered by high-speed ground transportation. All we need to do is look at places that are years ahead of us, whether it's Japan or Europe or what have you, where the speed with which and the safety with which and the reliability with which they're able to take themselves and others from one place to the other is a model for us. And again, we're not thinking something that's never been thought of. It's tested, tried, and true. We just need to get about the business of making it happen. And the one thing I know uh, from my having served in office, all too often we think about tomorrow, literally tomorrow. In transportation, you cannot do that. You have to think out two decades, three decades, and more. And you have to fundamentally remember that in doing so, the population of the Cascadia Corridor is going to grow in the next few decades by three to four million more people. If we don't think futuristically and prepare for this, we will find ourselves doing the same thing we've done in the past, surprised that we have everybody sitting in a parking lot on I-5 when we have no reason to be surprised. We need to plan, we need to think big, think bold, and get about the business of completing the job. It's so interesting. When I first moved to the Seattle region in 2000, there was discussion about the sound transit expansion. And, and I remember reading the paper and thinking, gosh, boy, that's that's so far. That's, this like it, It's so far off that it feels like never. And two weeks ago, I took the 44 bus down to the University of Washington, got on the link light rail and got to the Mariners game, you know, for a few bucks and no parking pains. You know, my colleagues were spending 50 bucks on parking next to the stadium. And, and it's really a good point tomorrow is is not literally tomorrow <laughs> it's and it's a lot closer th than you think on the high speed rail when you talk about it going up the corridor i know that there was an allocation from the washington state legislature that would need to be matched by federal funds to make that happen and that's even still relatively preliminary for people who do want to someday have that experience of jumping on a train and being in vancouver in an hour is that Realistic? Do you see that happening in the next decade, two? How far off is that? 
absolutely realistic. What we know we can do with high speed is get from Seattle to Vancouver, British Columbia in less than an hour or from Seattle to Portland in less than an hour. It's happening all around the globe. Is it realistic? Well, you know, I often get asked the question, well, what about others that are having problem or hiccups, for example, in, in California? So we have now got a plan. We're working with the University of Washington. They're looking at successes and failures across the globe with respect to building ultra high-speed ground transportation. We're taking those lessons and integrating them into everything we do. And, you know, if we can build, if we can build the largest floating bridge in the world, if we can build the largest tunnel to replace the viaduct in the world, we can do this. We can do this. Is it easy? No. But it will take everyone again. Government can't proclaim it's going to happen. The business community can't say, do it for us. It has to be done for everybody. There has to be absolute equity, affordability, reliability for everyone. So that's our focus. I absolutely believe it's doable and we will move it forward. What do you think about California's electric vehicle mandate and whether that could be adopted in other parts of the country to shift entirely to EV sales by 2035? So, you know, I thought Governor Newsom's discussion about that was most telling, which is that our automobile industry responds to consumer demand. And of course, California is huge. But if others join California, then they don't want to have two lines of cars, but rather they want to have one line. But what that would mean, think about the West Coast. If the West Coast joined together, as someone put it, an economy of one of the top 10 nations in the world is what that would mean. That will drive, I think, the automobile industry to think, as they are right now, we need to turn to electric vehicles, period. Not in 30 years, not in 20 years, but right now. We need to be doing that, and they are. So I think it was a a big, bold move in California. I absolutely believe it will be joined by other states. I think Governor Inslee has already indicated that uh, for Washington State. When that happens, it will drive the market, and the consumers will really fundamentally get an affordable car, most importantly, reliable, and less expensive in terms of driving than what we're seeing and experiencing today. I don't mean to make this entirely about all my transportation choices, but as I was driving up to the conference in Blaine in my 2007 Toyota Camry, which I've, by the way, vowed to keep until it dies or I die, one of the two, I was actually rethinking that pledge, which I've made internally to my family, because I would love to have all those autonomous assists, at least. It, it, it makes total sense to turn things over to the car to hopefully have it powered with sustainable electricity. It just, just makes total sense. Um, so you're starting to win me over on that front. And I'm one of the most stubborn people. That thing is paid off and I'm just going to keep going with it. At any rate, in our last minute here, what types of actions would you recommend for folks out there who are listening? Keeping in mind that we've got tech leaders out there in the GeekWire audience, people who are interested in business and technology and can shape this type of thing? Are, are there things that they can do to get engaged with what you're doing and with the overall mission of the group? Yes. And I invite everybody to participate. Again, the two things that have held us back have been financial, which now we have the wherewithal. 
and technology. And the answer is in technology. And we have historically underestimated, for example, when it came to wind and solar, huge underestimation of what technology could do. And now we see it drove down costs much faster and better than anticipated. And it happened much sooner than anybody anticipated. So I have every confidence with the technology-driven economy that we have in this corridor. That's exactly what we can do. But I also would ask, please, every resident in the corridor, join us. Because getting out of that gas-powered car, it's the number one issue for us, will mean a lot of advancing our success here. Number two is buildings. And what can we do there? We can go to a heat pump. We can reduce the need to go to natural gas only in those high demand times to avoid, unfortunately, what California and Texas before them have seen. So this is an all hands on deck effort. And I have confidence because when we poll the public in the corridor, they're there. They want to contribute. They want to be a part of the solution. So we've got the public sector pulling its weight, the private sector pulling its weight, the research institutions doing a fabulous job, uh, nonprofits, whether it's, you know, it, it, transportation advocates or environmental advocates, they're all weighing in and being tremendously helpful. And every single resident of the community at large can make a difference. So I'm confident. I feel good. Again, I will go back to Bill Gates' line. Daunting, but hopeful. Governor Chris Gregoire, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Former Washington Governor Chris Gregoire is the CEO of Challenge Seattle and the co-chair of the Cascadia Innovation Corridor. Find links in the show notes to our coverage from the Cascadia 2050 Vision Conference and to the Boston Consulting Group report prepared in advance of the event, which includes lots of interesting recommendations and potentially even some startup inspiration and ideas for folks out there. Thanks for listening to the GeekWire podcast. Kurt Milton produces and edits our show. Daniel L.K. Caldwell composed and performed our theme music. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. We'll be back next week with a new episode of the GeekWire podcast.